Hello and welcome to episode 102 of the UK True Crime Weekly Podcast. I'm Adam. I'm delighted that this week's podcast is again sponsored by the Book of the Year 2018 by No Such Thing as a Fish. If you've ever listened to the podcast No Such Thing as a Fish, you know that nobody's better at sniffing out barely believable yet hilarious facts from the team of researchers behind the BBC TV show QI. And now they've written a book, and it's full of the weirdest and funniest true stories from the year, including news that priests stop praying for people in case, in doing so, they breach new data protection laws, and having lived the nightmare of GDPR at work, I can quite understand that. I bet you can too. They also uncovered that a Belgian footballer inadvertently caused a revolution in Haiti, as you do. And that Elon Musk released a product that throws flames up to 10 feet. He called it Not a Flamethrower. And there are many, many more. The book of the year 2018 by No Such Thing as a Fish is your definitive guide to the world's weirdest news. It's out now in hardback, ebook, and audiobook, in all good bookshops, and of course online. Please support my sponsor and this podcast and buy this excellent book today. I did, and it's great. Before we begin, a huge thank you to all my Patreon supporters, but especially this week's new supporters, that's Ed Vellante, Sean, and Danielle Lafond. Thank you all so much. Today's episode was written and researched by a friend of the show, Chris Wood. Thanks again, Chris. A great job as ever. We head back to early 1994. This was a really good time for me as I'd just started my first ever job in Barking, East London. I had some great times there, especially in a couple of pubs. The Ship and Shovel, anyone remember that? And the Spotted Dog. There were loads of characters straight out of a Guy Ritchie film, risky escapades, eye-opening experiences, and more disposable income than I've ever had since. Now, why is it that as you earn more, you have less to spend? Outside my life in 1994, German discount supermarket Lidl opened its first 10 stores in the UK. The first Whitby Goth weekend took place in September of this year. One for your diaries. November saw a couple of firsts. The Daily Telegraph became the first British newspaper to launch an online edition, whilst the first UK national lottery draw took place. Actors Peter Cushing and Roy Castle sadly died this year as well as two sporting legends in Sir Matt Busby and Billy Wright. Jane Torville and Christopher Dean won the British Ice Dancing Championships in Sheffield, whilst the summer of 1994 saw the Football World Cup in the USA. Those of you old enough will recall that England sadly weren't there, failing to qualify, and instead we were left cheering on the only British interest in the tournament, the Republic of Ireland. The final itself was a drab affair between Brazil and Italy, which I watched in a bar in Istanbul full of passionate Italians. Brazil won on penalties. In music, I use the term loosely, East 17 won the coveted Christmas number one title with Stay Another Day. Get ready, because very soon we'll all be listening to those songs wherever we turn as another Christmas looms larger. The first playing of Slade can't be far away, can it? And finally, this was the year that Nirvana singer and all-round legend Kurt Cobain died, following a self-inflicted shotgun wound 
or was it? I think the arguments for murder are much more credible than suicide. What do you think? Why not come and discuss it at our Facebook group today? So on to today's story. Wakefield is a city which lies in the county of West Yorkshire, around 185 miles north from London, but perhaps more importantly, only nine miles southeast of the wonderful city of Leeds, the spiritual home of football, which hosts the world's greatest football team. Wakefield has a population of around 100,000 people, and it's located in a pretty position upon the River Calder on the eastern edge of the Pennines. Wendy Speaks was a divorcee and had lived in Ball Lane in Wakefield for almost 11 years. She had two daughters, Tracy, 31, and Leah, 29, to whom she was extremely close. They enjoyed a fantastic relationship together. Wendy often referred to the trio as the Three Musketeers in light of the camaraderie, loyalty, and love they share for one another. Maybe a bit like me, Paul from the True Crime Enthusiast, and Cambo from True Crime Island. Maybe. Such was the bond they shared that Wendy had recently decided to take the steps to sell her house and move to Essex to be closer to the newly married Tracy. It was a big step when Wendy handed in her notice at the job she held in the town of Osset as an office receptionist. As you know, moving away from your roots is a tough time for most people. But at Wendy's time of life, well, I say her time of life, she was only 51, relatively young. But all the same, leaving lifelong friends and family behind was certainly a very significant step to be taking. But tragically, the bizarre events of Tuesday the 15th of March 1994 meant that these hopes of a new life were extinguished before they were ever able to even begin. At 8.30am on the Tuesday morning, a 24-year-old woman was waiting for her bus to work. Her identity has never been made public, but she was to prove a key witness to events that would unfold throughout the day. It was only a short journey to work, and her mind was busy with thoughts of what the day ahead would have in store for her. Suddenly, as she stood waiting for her bus, she became unnerved by a man that walked slowly past her. You know, he was slightly too close for comfort, and he almost physically brushed against her as he ambled past. He then hovered around momentarily before he would wander past her again. The strange man certainly caused some initial concern, but when her bus arrived, she gleefully boarded it, leaving the man behind, and not really giving it another thought. And certainly by the time she'd finished her day at work, she had completely forgotten about the man she'd encountered that morning. But later that day, the same lady was on her way home, again on the bus at about 5pm, and as she stepped off the bus, she was taken aback to see the same man who had spooked her earlier on in the day. He was again loitering around the bus stop. Did he know that she would be due home soon around that time? Was he purposely waiting for her, or was it that bus stop? Ignoring him, she made her way home anxiously, but she soon forgot all about him as she settled in for the evening. However, she was soon disturbed again when there was a knock at her front door. Upon answering, she was stunned to be confronted once again with this man from the bus stop. By now her anxiety levels and suspicions 
about what his motives were began to run riot. He started to ask for directions to a road nearby and told we'd been in the area for a couple of hours looking for it. Having already seen him some eight hours or so earlier, she knew this to be a lie and so she told him that she didn't know where the road was or how to get there. He persisted, further asking if he could come into the house while she tried to think where the road was. But luckily she sensibly objected to this and then made out her boyfriend was due home any moment. This mention of her boyfriend finally seemed to deter the man and she hurriedly pushed the door closed on him. It was an incredibly unsettling experience, as is anything that makes you feel uncomfortable in and around your home, isn't it? An hour after this bizarre encounter, Wendy was arriving home on the number 126 bus from Osset, which would deliver her close to home and leave her with just a short walk back to her terraced house. Wendy was preoccupied with the impending adventure she would soon embark upon as she got off the bus at Wakefield bus station and made the 10 minute walk home. She got there just after 6 o'clock. Opposite Wendy's house was a silkscreen printing business called Green's Printers. A workman in the printers spotted a man through the window walking down the side of Wendy's house shortly after 6pm. He initially thought it strange as he had never seen anybody at the house before. And then a short time later, the workman returned to the window and this time he saw the man standing on Wendy's doorstep talking to her at the front door. The man then left Wendy's front door and wandered down the side of her house again towards the rear. All very strange. And only a minute later the same man reappeared again at the front of the house and he saw Wendy step back into the doorway as if to get something, leaving the man on the step who seemed to be frantically looking all around. The printing guy then turned and continued with his work, thinking it seemed a little odd for sure, but no doubt innocent. And I guess this is something that most of us would do. We see things that appear a little bizarre or out of the ordinary, but would you actually act upon your suspicions? I always assume an innocent explanation, and just forget about what I've seen. Are you the same? Five minutes later, the printer again glanced out of the window, and this time spotted the man leaving Wendy's house. He walked for the first couple of yards, and then began running away down the street, but again, the printer thought nothing much of it. The following morning, Wendy failed to turn up for work at the office. Ever conscientious and prompt in her timekeeping, this unusual event sparked concern, and Wendy's colleague Deborah Crossley and her dad Robert drove to the house to check on her. It really wasn't like Wendy to not turn up for work, and even less likely for her to have not contacted anyone there explaining her absence. Any hopes that there was simply an innocent explanation for her non-attendance was sadly quashed when Deborah searched the back bedroom of the house. Wendy's lifeless body was found at the foot of her bed in a pool of blood. And awfully, it was clear that she'd been sexually assaulted and then repeatedly stabbed in the neck and back. As we so often hear on this podcast, it was clear that she must have suffered just the most horrendous and also frightening death. Such a terrible end for such a gentle, kind woman who showed so much respect to those around her in life. 
West Yorkshire Police placed Detective Superintendent Bob Taylor as the head of the murder hunt. Taylor was a top officer. He was responsible for the capture of the infamous killer and kidnapper Michael Sands. At the murder scene in Wakefield, police and forensic experts discovered several bizarre items which they immediately felt may be of significance. Wendy was found wearing a tatty pair of blue mule-type sandals, which detectives believe the killer had brought these with him and forced Wendy to wear during the attack. Close to Wendy's left hand was a piece of pink candlewick material and a pair of black denier stockings which had loops tied in the top of them as if to restrain someone. It also looked like the killer had placed a pair of Wendy's own black shoes on a chest of drawers close to where her body was found. No part of Wendy's house was disturbed other than her shoe cupboard. And it was discovered that the murderer had even taken a pair of Wendy's shoes with him as he fled the scene, possibly as a ghoulish memento of his actions. With all of this in mind, it was clear to detectives from the outset that there was a strong possibility that whoever had killed Wendy had a shoe fetish and could perhaps only become aroused if footwear was involved. As well as leaving behind items he brought with him to set the scene for his horrific crime, the killer also left forensic evidence from which police were able to obtain his DNA profile. Detective Superintendent Taylor said, in leaving his DNA profile, he has handed us what could be seen as the elusive Cinderella slipper. Hmm, bearing in mind the crime, not the greatest choice of words, is it? Even from a so-called top detective. However, even armed with this DNA, and despite huge amounts of work on the ground locally, police failed to make a breakthrough. They turned to the BBC's Crime Watch programme, in the hope that this might help unearth the clue that would lead to the arrest of Wendy's killer. On the programme, the reconstruction of Wendy's murder revealed that the blue shoes she'd been wearing when her body was found had been purchased from a charity shop in Wakefield a few days prior to the killing. The female shop assistant had been asked by the man who bought them to try them on for him, allegedly so he could gauge the size and see if they would fit the intended recipient of the shoes. It was clear that whoever had bought these shoes was now a front-running suspect who the police were desperate to trace. Top Cop Taylor also revealed they'd spoken to several offender profilers who'd portrayed an outline of characteristics that they would expect the killer to exhibit. Excuse my cynicism here. If you think this stuff is really valuable, then that's absolutely great. But look, let's see what they told Taylor. They believed he would be of normal appearance and voice, whatever that means, have a normal intelligence level, be a working class local man living alone, and possibly may have served a prison sentence in the past. Even the physical descriptions obtained from the witnesses led to nothing. Although they may have been accurate, there was certainly nothing that would make the man stand out from a crowd. He was thought to be 5 foot 8 to 5 foot 10 inches tall, with mid-brown hair, and aged between 35 and 45. Not much to go on, is it? Basically a normal sort of guy, and probably describes 75% of the spectators at your average football match. Despite the difficulties that the police faced, 
detectives were able to reach conclusions about how Wendy came to fall victim to the crime. Detective Taylor made clear his feelings that there was a strong possibility that Wendy was the victim of a stalker. He said, How did the man know that, when he knocked on Wendy's door, that an 18-stone Wakefield Trinity prop forward wasn't having his tea or was due home? Maybe her killer had spent some time watching Wendy from the nearby Cliff Tree pub. It was also daylight. Did he ask to use her phone or for a piece of paper and barge in when her back was turned and produced a knife? This man was a shrewd planner and certainly knew he was on safe ground once he got inside, minutes after she'd arrived home. Her daughters say that Wendy would shower immediately after getting in, but when she was found she still had her makeup and her work clothes on. This reinforces the theory that she may have been followed home by a stalker. Such was the ferocity and barbaric nature of Wendy's murder, that police were determined to leave no stone unturned in the hunt for her killer. They issued warnings to local sex workers to be vigilant of any customers with strange requests involving shoes. They even spoke to members of the Foot Lovers Appreciation Society, no, me neither, in attempts to try and understand more about this less commonly known sexual fetish. Due to the nature of the murder, police believed there was a very strong chance that the killer would strike again. But as the hunt for Wendy's killer continued, police frustratingly remained unable to achieve that all-important breakthrough. Blood samples were taken from over 3,000 men across England and indeed Europe to eliminate them from their inquiries. But still no suspects were found, and as time drifted on, the case faded from the front pages of the papers as new events occurred. But of course, for the close family and friends, it's impossible to move on. And the murder is the first thing they think about in the morning and the last thing at night before sleep. Two years after the murder, Wendy's daughter Tracy spoke about the family's grief and their difficulties in trying to move forward with their own lives since the loss of their mum. It's my third wedding anniversary this week, she said, but we can't celebrate it as too many painful memories are linked to the wedding day. Mum gave me away and made a lovely speech at the reception. We've got a video of the wedding, but I haven't been able to watch it since she died. My last words to Mum were, I'll see you soon, and of course I never saw her again. I haven't been able to say that phrase to anyone since. The Sunday before she was killed was Mother's Day and we both sent her a card. I'll never forget walking into the house after she'd been killed and seeing our cards on the mantelpiece. But in June 1996, it seemed as though police finally had the breakthrough they needed. But at that time, they just didn't know it. Christopher Farrow of Cookridge in Leeds was arrested following a drink drive offence. His fingerprints were routinely taken, but it would be another four years before the police's automatic fingerprint recognition computer matched them with the print left on the handle of Wendy's bedroom door. Farrow had evaded capture for six years, but for much of that time the vital piece of information was sitting right under the police's noses, although sadly they could never have known it at the time. 
The bloodstains found at the murder scene were conclusively shown to be Farrow's, and the chance of it belonging to anyone else was 1 in 30 million. He was arrested, and in the face of such overwhelming evidence, father of three, Farrow, admitted the worder of Wendy Speaks immediately. In November 2000, Leeds Crown Court would hear the horrendous actions of one man that would leave a family grieving forever. The court heard that he left work in Bradford, where he worked at a printing firm, and he caught a bus to Wakefield. He took with him a candlewick rag, which he used to gag Wendy, and also the knife used in the attack. It transpired he bought the black stockings in the local superdrug store in Wakefield. Robert Smith QC prosecuting said that Farrow had told detectives, I just saw her get off a bus as I was getting off another bus. I'd been thinking how crap my life was. My sex life was absolute zero and I had a lot of anger and resentment towards my girlfriend. I decided to do something that day to someone. I just wanted someone to suffer the same way that I was feeling. Douglas Hogg QC had the impossible task of defending Farrow. Claiming that he wasn't a serial offender, he said, after he'd raped Wendy, Farrow panicked and recognised that she was able to identify him, so he went back to the bedroom and stabbed her to death. So had Wendy thought that despite the horror of the rape, she was actually going to be allowed to live, and then the dread of seeing her attacker return with a knife. Again, it just must have been so frightening for her. It also transpired that Pharaoh had certainly been hell-bent on committing these acts on somebody, anybody, the victim being whoever was unfortunate enough to cross his path. The court heard that he'd been stalking a woman for several days before the murder, and this was the woman who we heard about at the beginning of the podcast, when she mercifully, for her, refused to let him into her home. Are the fine margins in life of our actions and consequences. His failure in this instance served only to anger and rile him further, to a state that he was adamantly set on carrying out the vicious attack on anybody else. Suspicions about the fetish nature of the killing proved correct, as the court heard the grim details of what had happened inside Wendy's house. As police had suspected, Farrow made Wendy remove her slippers and replace them with a pair of blue sandals he had brought with him. He then forced Wendy upstairs, and having found a pair of her black stiletto heels, he placed them on a bedside table, which he stared at as he raped her. He then stabbed her nine times in the back and shoulders, and twice in the neck with a four-inch knife. The prosecution continued claiming that the footwear, like the black shoes on the bedside table, were intended to play some specific role for the purpose of sexual arousal. Smith QC added that Farrow liked to look at shoes when he was having sex. Wendy's two daughters, Leah and Tracy, wept in the public gallery as the judge commented that the crime was savage, brutal and terrible. On the 14th of November 2000, Justice Morland sentenced Farrow to life imprisonment with two concurrent 14-year sentences for rape and buggery and four years for attempted burglary. The judge said, The woman who was your intended victim 
was fortunate you failed to gain entry into her house. But then you located a second victim, another complete stranger, and you forced your way into her house. He recommended to the Home Secretary that Farrow should not be released from prison for very many years. Wendy's daughter Tracy said, Our mother had everything to live for. If she had not been so kind in trying to help Farrow out when he courted her home, she would still be alive today. He's a very dangerous man and should never be released. He has robbed me and my sister of our mum and robbed my five-year-old daughter of a grandma. Detective Superintendent Bob Taylor concurred with the judge's comments and reiterated the intent that was shown by Farrow. In my opinion, he said, there is no doubt that he deliberately set out to rape and kill someone. The police also believe that had Farrow not been apprehended, he may well have become a serial rapist or killer. He added, Experts in the field of criminal psychology have told us the man who carried out this killing would in all probability have a history of such offending. It's possible there are offences which understandably women may not have reported, or there may be crimes which have been reported, but which have not yet been linked to Farrow. Our investigation doesn't stop here. Even though Farrow has been sentenced to life imprisonment, it is vital we identify any other crimes he may have been involved in. We hear this a lot, don't we? But it's very rare that any further charges follow. And a decade later, that was the case here. But Farrow was again in the headlines as it emerged he'd been serving his prison sentence in relative luxury. Wendy's eldest daughter, Tracy, revealed her understandable fury and discontent when she became aware that Franklin Prison Durham built a luxury unit to house the most serious offenders. Sky TV, Playstations and a la carte menus were among some of the items that were being enjoyed by some of society's least deserving people. Look, I certainly don't believe in treating prisoners appallingly. I want less people in prison, and most of those who are there to be given opportunities to reform. But this does seem over the top, doesn't it? Tracy certainly felt so, saying, It is absolutely disgusting. It adds insult to injury to think they are living in the lap of luxury. Mum never lived like that, so why the hell should he? I've written to the prison governor and demanded to know what is happening to him. It is still so hard to deal with after all these years. The worst thing is that Farrow may only have to serve the minimum tariff of 18 years. I'm dreading that phone call telling me he'll be released. I'm determined never to let him or anyone else forget what he did. And anyone who lived in the Wakefield area in 1994 will be unlikely to ever forget the dreadful events of March the 15th. Indeed, when Detective Chief Superintendent Paul Johnson, who'd worked on the case alongside Bob Taylor, retired, he claimed that the best single moment in his lengthy career had been when he was able to tell Wendy Speaks' family that they'd finally caught the man responsible for Wendy's murder. These words certainly reveal the extent to which people have been haunted by the tragic murder of Wendy. The local community would never forget what happened to her. The police officers connected to the case would not. And Wendy's family and friends clearly would never let her be forgotten. A poignant ceremony is held by the family each year 
as a mark of remembrance and to aid in their grieving process. A process which should never have had to be endured until the random and twisted actions of one man turned so many lives upside down forever. So what do you make of what we've heard today? Sure, the press picked up the case due to the she-fetish, but take that part away and it's just a story of utter nightmares. A random attack by a seemingly normal father of three with a partner in a steady job. Just the sort of man so well known to you and to me. And again, as we hear so often on the podcast, he was only brought to justice as he was caught carrying out another crime, in this case drink driving. I wonder how Farrow feels right now in his prison cell when he reflects on his actions, which was certainly nothing to do with his sexual preferences. I mean, let's face it, if you've got a sexual fetish, especially one as harmless as involving shoes, there are almost unlimited opportunities to indulge this. In reality, he is just the worst source of predator and not someone that will ever be released. Good riddance to him, I think. My only concern is for his three children and how they've managed to cope with the actions of their father. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode of the UK True Crime Weekly Podcast. Please head to Facebook to discuss this case or any other aspect of UK True Crime. And to support the show, please head to patreon.com slash UK True Crime, where you can listen to 20 bonus episodes, 21 coming this week or the week after, plus other exclusive content, all for a couple of quid a month. So thanks again to my sponsor and to Chris Wood, And that is all from me for now. So until we speak again next week, take it easy and remember, stay classy. Cheerio.